Hey, Masters. Welcome to People of Eternia. I'm your host, Tom Romero. Ladies and gentlemen, with me right now is Filmation Royalty. This man <laughs> has had his hand in some of the greatest Masters of the Universe cartoons we've ever seen. The Return of Grandamere, uh, Dragon's Gift, Into the Abyss. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Robert Lamb. Welcome to People of Eternia, sir. How are you? Very good. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank, thank you for asking me. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Even, just, just before we get started, I even wore my master's shirt. Oh, that's beautiful. A whole collection of them. Mm -hmm. Very nice. And you have a great uh, Lou Shammer filmation. This was for the uh, uh, 25th anniversary of the studio. Wow. And it is just filled with all uh, all the different characters that, that we created over the years. Beautiful. So what was it like working at Filmation? Like, I know it was your, it was your first official job as a storyboard artist. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. And I started in 1981. I was 25 years old and finally broke into the business. I originally moved to Los Angeles to try to, um, I wanted to work for Disney. That was my, you know, that was my dream, but just couldn't quite get in. And through a series of circumstances, I was able to get in at Filmation in 81 because they had sold a lot of series and they needed more help. And normally one would kind of work up through the chain of being an animator and everything before getting into stories. But they were looking for anybody who, who knew film and could plot out a story. I auditioned and they took me on. And I started out on the New Adventures of Zorro and then on Hero High with Shazam. And uh, now how long did it take you to break in, actually? Like, I knew you took classes at Hanna-Barbera. Mm -hmm. I did. Um, let's see. I moved to Los Angeles. Oh, I think I was 21, I think. No, oh, I was 20. I was 20 when I moved there in 1976. I remember because I moved to Los Angeles on the bicentennial weekend, July 4th, 1976. And I was trying to break into all kinds of things. I was trying to get on at Universal Studios. I was trying to get on at uh, Disney and Warner Brothers and anywhere I could. And it was it's hard. And of course, when you're really young, you don't have the, uh, you know, you don't have the experience that they're looking for. So it took a while. And, but Things worked out in 1981. I was 25. Actually, one of the art directors, uh, I was working at a, a, a picture frame store, an art supply store uh, in Los Angeles called Aaron Brothers Art Marts. And I think Michaels owns them now. But uh, this art director from Filmation came in. His name is Bob Klein. And he had some things he was framing, and we got talking, and I told him. You know, what I uh, longed to be as an animator, he said, he gave me the name of, of the head of the storyboard department, says, uh, check with Carl. I think they need some help there. And so I auditioned and I, I detail that in my website on breaking in uh, how that went. But uh, they took me in. And the thing was, I was the worst artist there when I started. 
But I'll tell you something, drawing eight hours a day, 40 hours a week straight, and the fact that I was worse than everybody else, it makes you get better faster. And by the end of that time, I was writing, instead of being at the bottom, I was right in the middle. And I was called back in 83 when He-Man and the Masters of the Universe uh, began production. Now, you also did work on Fat Albert in the Cosby kits, correct? Yes, that actually was done in between season one and season two of He-Man. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, what happened was that they had uh, a number of episodes that they had made for uh, NBC for network television, but they didn't have enough to fill out a full 65 half hours, which is what was needed for syndication. And so we needed to make another 30 some odd episodes. And so that's that's what went into production during the uh, uh, interim of the okay. two seasons of He-Man. And they had uh, some interesting time. I had, uh, I storyboarded one called Sinister Stranger about a kidnapper. They wouldn't use the word child molester, but he was a kidnapper. And then there was a teenage mom and an odd one called A Miss with the Amish. And that one actually won a, um, uh, an award for uh, religious tolerance or something like that. And it was, uh, it came out about the same time as, um, uh, Harrison Ford's movie Witness, which was about a New York detective and an Amish. Okay. So that was rather interesting. In fact, there was a scene in a grain silo that was identical to the one in my Fat Albert episode. Oh, wow. So that was, <laughs> that was kind of weird. Yeah. So it was first season He-Man, Fat Albert, second season He-Man. And then we went right into uh, first season Shira. So what was it like working at Filmation? Like your first day? I mean... Was it oh. overwhelming? I mean, you're. Oh, it was. I was giddy from day one. Oh, I and, bet. Well, actually, I was. I was terrified because I just knew that they were going to think, discover I was a total fraud, and they boot me out as soon as they realized that I was. I was, you know, not Michelangelo. But they gave me the chance to grow and learn and get good at it, and they kept kept me on, and I was there all the way up to the. Uh, day the studio closed in 1989 but it was a family it was the last tv studio that had the entire production in-house the uh, we were in different buildings because they outgrew the one location in reseda but what i loved about it is that on on my coffee breaks we had a, a morning break and an afternoon break i would go into the other departments i love to go into the background department and watch the the backgrounds being painted or go to the camera department and watch them shooting the cells on film. And I just, uh, and also got to know other people in the company, but it was, it was a family. There were, um, Lou Scheimer had been in the trenches in his younger days and he wanted to keep the work here in America. And the other studios were already sending their stuff overseas. And in 1982, before He-Man came out, they were, the cartoonist union, the animators union went on strike. Right. Uh, protest uh, overseas production because, you know, the jobs are going away. And so uh, the different the union unions were picketing the different studios. Lou Scheimer came out and picketed his own studio, even though we weren't sending anything overseas. And I tell you, we loved him for it. Wow. It, it was great. And we just had a we just had a great time there. I, it was a shock. Great sadness when the studio, when the parent company, Westinghouse Broadcasting, shut down the studio in in eighty nine. 
All oh, right, they um they sold to L'Oreal, correct? Yes. What happened was that they were used to making refrigerators and uh, MX missile parts, and oh. they never saw any downturn. They didn't understand that in television, at least in, in that time period, uh, it was cyclical. There was a seven-year cycle. There were usually about five years of good business and then maybe a two-year slump. And what generally would happen is that when times were good, you'd hire all everybody in and production would go on. But as soon as the things went down, maybe you didn't sell that many series the next year, well, you laid off the majority, but you kept a core group of uh, creators to come up with the next show project. Okay. Well, after He-Man's enormous profitability, they said, oh, this is great. We should have this on our ledger every year. And they didn't understand that it. it goes up and down and up and down. And when they hit that lull and it was two years of, of just one show sold, they said, hmm, I think we want to get out of this cartoon business. And Lou Scheimer was trying to raise money to buy it back. He and his partner had, had uh, sold it to um, uh, back in the late 70s, I think, before, before I got there, and in order to raise capital so they could keep going. But, um, and then whoever had it then had sold it to, I think it was, a cable company named Teleprompter had bought had had bought the the studio. Then Group W Cable bought Teleprompter, and Group W was owned by Westinghouse. So that's kind of how all that happened. And unfortunately, even at the last minute, up to the eleventh hour, they were trying. He was trying to save the studio, and wow. it just didn't happen. Wow, that's a great shame. Yeah. So take me back, typical day in filmation. Now, I know to save money, they had the stock system. Mm -hmm. Now, as a storyboard artist, does that get frustrating for you? Like when you did your storyboards, did it have to mimic what was already in the stock system? Or were you allowed to free, you know, go crazy with designs and stuff? We had, uh, in a sense, a quota. I mean, and, and, and the reason for it is that we had to find ways to keep the costs down so that we could stay open. Right. If, if, if we blew the budget, we would be shut down years earlier. And so for um, in order to not send things overseas where you get where people are being paid five dollars a day to do the work, uh, we did about a, a system of animation that we could reuse over and over again. And actually, it was a way to keep animators employed in between seasons and say, okay, we're going to have this new show called He-Man. We know we're going to need dialogue setups. We're going to need uh, walks and runs and, and certain things, uh, maybe some sword fighting. And so they would keep a few of the uh, senior animators on. And they would, uh, in, in the case of He-Man, they would rotoscope them. Uh, oh, wow. hire uh, an actor or a model to do, you know, walk, swing a sword, that kind of thing. And then that would be used as reference for the animators who would then do it as He-Man. And then when production actually started, there would be this library of usable material. That was established back when Filmation did uh, 13 episodes for Saturday morning series. 
With He-Man, we were doing 65 episodes, which is basically 13 weeks of five episodes a week. And the stock system that ex- that was created was inadequate. Okay. It was just not enough. So what happened was we in Storyboard started seeing some of the daily, when we started seeing the animation come out, says, well, that was uh, custom animation for that particular episode. But you know what? I could have used that in my last show, and that was better than stock. So we came up with a, um, a system called Same As, and uh, stock would be used where, where it could. But if we knew of a bit of animation, like He-Man picking up a rock and pitching it or uh, um, doing a somersault or doing something, so yeah, I can use that in my show, then we started cataloging it. and it proved to be very beneficial because that meant we had a wider range of reusable animation instead of just the same 10 scenes. Okay. And uh, so actually what happened later on after, uh, after Shiro was over uh, when Filmation Ghostbusters came in, I actually moved out of doing storyboards myself into being pretty much full blown archivist and cataloger of all animation. Wow. And came up with a a system where we could, uh, it'd be, we used an old computer system trying to do it through keywords, but actually what was better was a notebook system where you get, okay, uh, here's the character in this notebook and here's close-ups, here's runs, walks, jumps, action, and so on. And uh, so that, a storyboard artist could pull it off the shelf and flip through it and say, mm-hmm, I could, oh, I can use this one. And then they would uh, Xerox it and put those panels in and, and pipe, put the proper uh, numbering on it saying, use this scene here. Or if it was something close, so it's like maybe half of the stuff, or maybe he runs into scene, but instead of picking up a rocket throwing it, he's got to yank a tree out of the ground. Well, they would say, okay, refer to this scene, meaning animator, take this as your starting point and finish it out. And that's how we got some of the better animation. And the uh, the producer, Hal Sutherland, started t- telling the directors, look, go ahead and tell your animators to push the quality as high as they can within reason, because there's a good chance if the scene is good, we can use it again. And that'll cut costs in a future episode. So you were moving as the story progressed. So, yes, and okay. so I I started out as a storyboard artist. Uh, first season He Man. By second season He Man, I, I got some scripts I didn't like, and I pitched uh, an idea to the head writer, uh, head of the writing department, Arthur Nadell, and I wanted my favorite writer, Larry Tilio, to write it so I could board this good story. Uh, Larry was busy, and Arthur says, you want to write it? I went, me? Uh, Yeah, sure, okay. So during the day, I was storyboarding, and then at night in my apartment, I was typing out this this script, uh, this freelance script on my little brother typewriter. Did you always want to be a writer? Did you ever aspire to that, or you just uh, always had these ideas? Well, I describe myself as a story guy. I like telling stories. Storyboarding is telling it visually. And um, I hadn't aspired exactly to being a writer, 
but uh, it came naturally for, for uh, well, at least as far as he man and Shira were concerned. And so uh, they liked my first script, which was Into the Abyss. And Arthur says, you got another one? I said, oh, sure I do. And I thought about it and I came up with a story of a, of a blind boy helping He-Man who is temporarily blinded and that's called Not So Blind. Right. And on the basis of those two scripts, Arthur invited me to leave the storyboard department, storyboard department and join the writing staff. Wow. And so I finished out second season He-Man as a staff writer working alongside Larry Dottilio, my favorite writer, and this young upstart named Joe Straczynski, <laughs> who uh, people usually know as JMS or J. Michael Straczynski right, right. Uh, of Babylon 5 fame. And did you also and, work with Paul Denny? Um, no. Uh, the, well, we were in the building at the same time, but uh, he, uh, he was not on, a, on the storyboard staff when I was. He, oh, he okay. was before me. Gotcha. Uh, but I, I ran into him from time to time. Was there a lot of collaboration amongst the writers? Like, was there a writer's room for this? And No, I went, oh, listen, I I grew up on, on the Dick Van Dyke show. And I imagine that's what writers did, is they would brainstorm in groups and someone would be taking the notes. Right. No, we tended to, to work in individual offices, although uh, we would sometimes uh, cross the hall and say, look, I'm I'm stuck here. I got my hero in this real pickle. And if I do this, it's lame. If I do this, like I need some help here. And so we'd kind of talk it through. Also, we'd say, look, I've been given this uh, assignment to use this character. Didn't you do, didn't you work in this character on, uh, on a previous episode? I go, Oh yes, I did that one. And we did some, some collaboration, but not like you think. How much input did Mattel have? Like, were they breathing down your neck saying, you know, you got to add this character? Oh, okay. Actually, Luke Scheimer had really set up a very sweetheart deal for Filmation. Um, They were really looking for 30-minute commercials. That's all they wanted. And Lou said, no, look, we tell stories. You've got some interesting characters with these toys, but I'll tell you what we're going to do. We won't tell you how to make your toys. You don't tell us how to make the cartoons. Wow. We will try to accommodate, use as many of the characters as possible when they make sense. They chafed at that a little bit, but that helped us. I had friends over at Marvel when, uh, or I think it was Marvel, when they, when, uh, they were doing G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. And Hasbro had ultimate control over everything. And it was miserable. They had mandates that... Every one of the main of the characters had to be on the screen at the same time all the time. And whenever the GI Joe team went from point A to point B, they needed to use at least four vehicles wow. because we have four toys. And that's all that mattered was it was product placement and it drove them crazy. Yeah. It was a shame that like in the eighties, you know, most adults and you know, some people are age even, they were just saying the 80s cartoons were just half hour commercials, but it was people like Lou Scheimer and Filmation that, no, no, we're telling stories. This is what people need to understand. I mean, the complex relationships in Masters of the Universe and She-Ra and, and even Bravestar, you don't, you really don't find or see any of that in other animated features like G.I. Joe 
or Transformers. I mean, yeah, they, you know, they mingle and interact with one another, but it doesn't, it's not as rich and deep as it was in Masters. Yeah, and that was, uh, I credit the writers for that because um, they wanted, they came from uh, different backgrounds. Larry DiTilio came from uh, uh, role-playing games and he, he loved the depth of things. That's why I like doing his scripts. And I tried to do that the same with mine. I'm, uh, I got into a lot of arguments with Arthur because really? he, was, he was just trying. He said he thought it was uh, that the audience really didn't pay that close of attention. And I mm-hmm. said, but Arthur, you, we've established that this character has this superpower and they can teleport. So how is them falling into a ravine any jeopardy for them? All they have to do is go poof and they're out. We have right. to find some way to restrict them. And he says, oh, no, no, the kids don't notice that sort of thing. <laughs> and I'd fight and, and I knew I, I had to stop when he'd say, why are you fighting me on this? Okay, I'll go back to my office. And, you know, that's, that's the way I went. I think uh, uh, at the end of Shear of season one, um, I had fought one too many battles and he said I could go back to storyboards. Wow. But, uh, but that's okay. Um, yeah. Cause I loved your writing. I mean, one of the cool aspects that I found out of when reading about you was in return of the grand Amir, there's a scene where he man and, and man at arms are sleeping in a castle and you had man at arms, you know, remove his, just his armor. And then the scene where the demon breaks through and attacks them both. All you see is that slow hand going for his armor. All of a sudden, you know, you see uh, a helmetless man at arms. So like realistic points like that. That's what I love about your writing. Same thing in not so blind. I mean, he man has all these magnificent powers and yet he's temporarily blinded with Ram man for a while. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those realistic points. I mean, we, you know, I, I hate to talk ill of the dead, but we actually did pay attention to stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you, um, and I've been to enough uh, fan conventions and heard so much from uh, fans who were kids at that age that were supposedly too young to notice. And I, Arthur, God rest his soul, has passed on. And I uh, feel like, I wish you could have. You sh- I wish you could hear it from them for their own lips. What, how much these shows meant to them, and that they did pay attention. But we didn't have the internet in the eighties. It was uh, we'd get some fan letters, but uh, we didn't have this kind of feedback that you can have now. Now, one of my favorite episodes has always been the Dragon's Gift. You storyboarded yeah. that, and uh, Larry Dottilio wrote it. Well, mm-hmm. could you tell me anything? About- uh, you know, like some behind the scenes stuff about that. Yes, that was my, uh, that was my very first team and board. Oh, awesome. And even though I boarded the cosmic comet, which has the production number of one, that one was not, uh, that script went through many revisions. And so it didn't enter into the production line till later. So, um, the dragon's gift was my introduction to He-Man. Okay. And what did you uh, think of it? Like the whole concept? Well, part of it was trying to get our heads wrapped around it. I bought the comic books. I, I, I saw the toys and everything and trying to get a sense of it. And we were trying, we were building this mythology. Right. And so um, 
Larry came up with this character of the oldest and wisest of dragons, the old, the one of the oldest living things on Eternia. Uh, Sky Tree was the other one, mm-hmm. and so there um, there are some interesting things. Now I'll tell you that I, I, on my website I, I put a panel of a scene that was cut out of the episode, in which He Man throws Beast Man off the draw, jaw bridge of Castle Grayskull. And he lands in a, in a, a muddy moat around the uh, castle. Well, that scene was cut. Oh. And so we never knew what was around the castle until I wrote Into the Abyss, which, oh, okay. I, based, which I based on a diagram that um, Lorenzo Martinez, uh, the uh, supervisor for background layout, had done that the writers had ignored. And he said there was this bottomless pit around, around the uh, castle. So inadvertently, that had been set up by not having the scene that, that uh, uh, Larry had called for in his script, and I had illustrated in the storyboard, was edited out for time and, and budget, and set me up for Into the Abyss. Um, let's see. As far as anything else, um, we talked to, I had that, uh, uh, my own version of Granamir in the storyboard because I didn't have a model yet. Right. And then when I got the model sheets from the, uh, uh, the first character designs of Granamir, I was not impressed. <laughs> I thought the helmet was silly. Um, they made him a little bit too pot-bellied. And I didn't think he looked quite as fierce as I had envisioned him. But uh, he has caught on with, with the fans. And after a while, I kind of got used to it. But uh, like, have you awesome. seen have you seen the classics version of Grandemir, the yes. actual figure? Oh, okay. Yes, I have, and that's fine. I'm I, I got over my initial uh, dislike of the design. He's been he's been vindicated, but yeah, I was really glad when I got Return of the Grandemir, so I could revisit him. He was an uh, interesting character. Make it, made his wings bigger. Yeah, that was so weird. That was so weird. We I got the uh, I was doing the storyboards, and I go, okay, he's got to d- battle um, Shadowwing. I think was the name of the dragon, right? In an air battle, and they rightly gave the villain dragon big wings. And so here we have this old duffer of a of a dragon. He's, he's going to flutter on these little tiny butterfly wings. I go, no, no, no. So. They grow. And uh, I talked to the director and I talked to the producer said, look, we got to fix this because it ain't going to, it's not going to look good otherwise. And happily they did. Into the Abyss is a great story. Hands down, one of the best Hemian you know, cartoons out there. Did you see this as another career opportunity to write more animation? Or you just wanted to prove uh, Arthur Nadell wrong? No, I... What I, I'll tell you what the motivation was. First season, he man, I got several Larry Dutilio scripts, good stories, well told, lots of fun to, to work on. Dragon's Gift, Return to Granamere, House of Shikoti, um, just amazing. All right, so then uh, first season, he man was done, and we went on to doing Fat Albert for uh, a few months. And then when second season He-Man came on, I'm all right, ready to get back into it. Well, I didn't get any of Larry's scripts. 
I got a couple of lesser stories, I'll put it that way. And the, and the worst one was Fisto's Forest, which uh, introduced the character of, of Fisto, and, but it was very poorly written. And it, it, the whole episode was snake bit. Um, let's put it this way. Mistakes were made in every single department. And when the rough cut uh, was put together, Lou was so angry that he called all the department heads and me into the conference room and ran the episode. And there were mistakes. There were, um, there was one of my mistakes was I wrote the wrong stock number. Uh, I had um, stock of Prince Adam walks in the scene and then it should, should cut to a close up of Prince Adam talking and then uh, Prince Adam exits the scene. Well, I wrote the wrong stock number on the close up and they, nobody caught it. And so Prince Adam walks up, speaks as He-Man, and then walks out as Prince Adam. And oh, wow. Lou was livid. And I apologized to him. He says, no, 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 you wrote the wrong number, but these idiots didn't even see it. They, I have whole departments that do nothing but check these things. So he was, and, and there was a lot of um, paint problems. There was sleeves that would appear and disappear. Oh, wow. Paint the uh, sleeve skin color, and in the next scene, it's green. And so there was just mistakes made. Normally in an episode, uh, a filmation episode, we'd have about 20, maybe 25% retakes. Seems they have to be done over again. Fistel's Forest was 70% had to be redone. It was an expensive show that wasn't that good to begin with. So while I'm... But before that happened, I was working, I was storyboarding this, just gritting my teeth because I really wasn't liking it. And I, I looked up on, on my wall, I had that diagram of Grace, of Castle Grayskull with the you know, statement that uh, says, and this bottomless pit. And I had the original writer's guide written by Michael Halperin that talked about the mythology, talked about the history of Eternia and all that stuff. And I said, we never address any of this. And so as I was looking at that, I said, I wonder what would happen if somebody fell into that abyss, not all the way down, but halfway down, and was down there when He-Man transformed and all the power of Grayskull comes up. And I, hmm. And so I, I pitched an idea to Arthur. Now, in my original uh, storyline, I had Skeletor, trying to get into Grayskull again, and he ends up blasting Tila and knocks her off. Wow. Okay. Very violent. And uh, he gains access to Grayskull, and the sorcerer is livid. And I had Skeletor say something snarky, like, what are you, her mother? And she blasts him back to Snake Mountain with a good dose of amnesia. And Arthur said, well, it's it's funny, it's good, but we've had him, we've had Skeletor going after Grayskull time after time after time let's do something else and but it, they liked that he liked the idea of tila being down into the abyss and so i said well okay well maybe i can have it be an accident and i ended up writing the first episode with no villain and it was kind of a character study right. i also uh played around a little bit with adam not getting a little tired of being the hero 
And Tila's looking for Prince Adam in, in the uh, early part of the show to uh, continue his combat training and finds him laying under the uh, tree with a cringer. And he acts very dismissive. He goes, I'm tired. I don't feel like it. You may go, Captain. And Cringer rebukes him, and uh, Adam goes on about, well, yeah, I, I'm tired of it. Sometimes I'm tired. Man, I know He-Man never gets tired, but I get tired. And I had that, uh, just a little bit of character stuff there, and I was surprised when Arthur let it go through. And I've been told by, by fans that's one of their favorite episodes because of things like that. Oh, yeah, it's a whole different take on Adam. Like yeah. you, you've the secret identity's always been. We know Bruce Wayne's Batman, but is he always a millionaire even when he's Batman? You know, questions like that come up. And same thing with He Man. Like Adam is a prince, you know, and this was a whole new take on him. Like one of the great aspects of Adam that I love about it is he chooses to be He Man. And in your particular episode, you know, he didn't feel like you know he he was more of a prince at that moment than you know being the you know heroic identity i mean i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah no 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 go go on it's fine that's exactly i wanted to make him more human give him a round give him a little bit more character depth i mean you can only do so much right but um just a little bit and the other thing was I wanted to reconnect Tila with the sorceress and because I really liked uh, Tila's quest back in the, the, the uh, first few episodes where she mm-hmm. uh, find, finds out and then is made to forget that she is the daughter of, of the sorceress. Right. And so when she's down in the abyss and, and the sorceress is trying to sense her and call out to her, she feels it. And uh, at the end, after she's rescued and she tells Adam and man at arms that she felt her mother and that she cares for her and so on. And then I had the sorcerer say, she does, Tila, she does. We got a fan letter from a, a, a young woman, a young mother who I guess that really resonated with and, and you know, said that, that that brought tears to her eyes. And I went, I mean, that's actually actually a letter we got after the show aired. And I mean, that meant a whole lot to me. Oh, I'm sure. Back then you probably thought, all right, this is a job, you know, this, I just do my work, get paid and move on to the next one. But years later, I mean, you, I'm sure you realized how these episodes, these, you know, the whole series, even with She-Ra, how they've touched and inspired a, a whole generation of children. Well, that was that was the surprise at the time. Now, I will say this: at the time, I was well aware that I was in creative paradise. I loved it, and I loved every minute of it. Yes, you get things that are not fun to do, but I've all I had also worked at some pretty crummy jobs leading up to that career, and I said, my worst day here is ten times better than my best day in anything else I've done. Wow. So, I didn't complain very much. So uh, I I loved it, and I tell I tell people I, I feel like I peaked early, <laughs> and everything else is kind of okay. <laughs> but but honestly, I uh, what we didn't know was the effect. We knew that the show was popular, 
the toys are popular. We, we knew that. But we, other than a few fan letters, we really didn't have a, a, a sense of it. And it wasn't, for me, it wasn't until, um, let's say, 1998, I remember, I was uh, new to the internet and I was actually trying to connect with some of my, it's been, it was about nine years since Filmation had closed and I was now in a different part of the country and I was trying to reconnect with some of my friends. So I type in Filmation in the Google, I try type in different things. And I tried, you know, hmm, I'm not getting much of anything. So I typed in my name and the word Filmation. And this website came up called the He-Man Shira Episode Review website, run by oh, okay. James Zetok and Zadok uh, Angel. And uh, specifically, their review of Into the Abyss. And it wasn't like a paragraph. It was this huge, long dissertation. And I read it, and I, I just was amazed because they were very uh, full of praise. I went, oh, my goodness. Someone's got way too much time on their hands. <laughs> and after I finished it, I, I just sent them a little note, an email, saying, well, thank you for the kind words. I'm glad you liked the show. And they came at me <laughs> through the <laughs> Internet with uh, wanting to know every single detail about um, a lot of the questions you've asked and many, many more. And that started a relationship. I'm still friends with James Etock after all these years. And uh, finally met him at PowerCon in Los Angeles in 2012, along with meeting a lot of fans for the first time and having them tell me what the show me meant to them. And it still amazes me because I, whenever I go anywhere, uh, to a comic convention or any place like that, I, I hear the same things that uh, uh, usually it starts out with this. You made my childhood. That's wow. the phrase I hear the most. And no, we had no idea that it had an impact that large of an impact. So as a writer or even as a storyboard artist, were there any ideas that you had down the line that never saw production? Like any new adventures for He-Man? Well, uh, yes. In fact, what would happen is that uh, uh, we would pitch ideas to Arthur. You know, I'd uh, usually come up with half a dozen story ideas for He-Man script or, or Shira's script and say, and he would pick the one that he wanted to be written. And usually just be like one sentence. Um, for example, uh, Tila falls into the uh, abyss around Grayskull and has to be rescued, but witnesses the transformation power coming out. You know, something like that. Just a couple lines. Said, yeah, let's work that up. And what would happen is from that little, you know, little uh, two sentence description, we'd write up maybe a one page premise, which would have the beginning, middle and end of the story. Okay. And if there was enough there, then Arthur would say, okay, we're going to put this into production and it would get a production number. And the next thing would be to write about a four or five page outline with every single bit of action that happens. And once that was approved, then it would be turned into a script. Well, I had some that 
made it maybe to the outline stage before it got canned, <laughs> or maybe it yeah. made it to the first draft of the script and then it got canned. Um, I had a He-Man story called uh, Flight of the Fairwind that actually was my attempt at doing comedy. And I'm embarrassed to say Arthur was very well justified in, in, in putting that back on the shelf because it was not very good. <laughs> and um, I pull it out from time to time to remind myself that not everything I touch is gold. I can write crap. <laughs> so, okay, that, would, that should not have seen the light of day. Um, is that the origin of Crackers the Clown? Is that what it was about? You can't pin that on me. That was <laughs> <laughs> that was Roby Gorn. Um, but I did one Shira episode that I was sorry didn't get made. But actually, Mattel Mattel's change of character just made it so it didn't work. I was writing for this new character called Amber, and. Mr. Sapphire, and in that, I've done one draft, and they changed the name to a volcan uh, Volcana, I guess, Lady of Lava, I guess, I don't know. And the title of my episode was Amber Waves of Flame, hmm. which was a nice pun. Didn't work for Volcana. All right. And the script went through a lot of rewrites, and it just wasn't strong enough. And so Arthur said, you know, it, it's okay, but it's not great. And I said, yeah. And it, you know what happens when something gets worked and reworked and reworked and reworked? Sometimes it just, it's better to just tear it up and start over again fresh. Right. But we were towards the end of the series and they said, well, let's just let this one go. There is a possibility that um, Amber may see the light of day eventually i'd like to you know we'll we'll see about that but um i thought the character had a lot of potential and especially for a amber frosta battle right wow so that's what um that's what i wanted but didn't come to pass how do you feel about animation shows today as compared to back then like do you feel they're more goofy and like more they tend to be, silly. I think what, what has happened is that there's been kind of a watering down of, of quality, a lessening of quality, and, and partially because uh, it is easier to put something together uh, with computers. Back in, uh, in the 80s, you had to know how to draw, and it'd be drawn on pencil on paper, it would be... Uh, the line mark would be put on plastic sheets called cells and they'd be hand painted and then on hand painted backgrounds and shot on 35 millimeter film, which had to be processed. They'd have to edit it. Effects would have to be done in, um, in the film. Uh, we had limitations. You couldn't have more than six layers of cells because the density of the plastic after a while would change the shades of color underneath. In computer, you can have 100 layers. It doesn't matter. You can have as many as you want. And I think there's been a lot of shortcuts lately. Now, it, it's entirely possible to create just as great of animation with uh, the current systems as, as, as evidenced by anime out of Japan. Uh, they can do you know, It's possible. 
but I think there's been a um, an acceptance of a lesser quality of things. And I'm, I haven't been real impressed with a lot of things I've seen lately, to be honest. Right. I'm looking forward to what Kevin Smith is doing for Netflix. He's, he is doing a new He-Man series, and he has stated that it will be a continuation of the Filmation series. Right, so Masters I'm, of the Universe Revelations. Exactly. So I'm very curious. I'm cautiously optimistic. I want to see what he does with it. Awesome. Now, have, has anyone ever reached out to you like since uh, 2000X and even these shows that are coming? Well, actually, um, I, met, I ran into Dean Stefan. Uh, who was who was the head writer at uh, Mike Young Productions doing the their He-Man pr- uh, series, right? And he didn't know how to get in touch with me oh, wow. at that time. I mean, th- this was early internet days uh, for a lot of us, and I was not in Los Angeles uh, because I ran into him at PowerCon, I think, in 2013. And we hit it off really good. And he goes, "Oh man, I loved your shows. I wish we could." I wish I could have been in touch with you. Of course, by that time, you know, Mike Young production was long done. But that was that was nice to hear. I said I would have been happy to help out. Now, do you have any like let's say Kevin Smith came to you right now and was like, Hey, Mr. Lamb, we need a He Man story. Like, has um, there something that you've always wanted to tell with those characters or say? Well, you know, actually, since he wants to do a continuation, there was one episode that I wrote that I really wanted to be a two-parter, but uh, all these signs were given out, and it was my last He-Man script. It was called The Mirror, the Ancient Mirror of Abathar. Okay. And that was, again, me wanting to bring back some of the history. And so the first, I mean, that episode was basically getting this mirror. And then the second episode was going to be Skeletor trying to steal the mirror and uh men at arms discovering origins within the mirror of gray skull and all this other stuff and that was going to be my way of fleshing out the um, the mythology wow. but they didn't let me do it and so and so it's like they there's this and actually i'm very proud of of the episode that is there but you, it's not satisfying because you got the mirror, but you don't, don't get to see what's in it. Interesting. Yeah, that would I did, have, I did have one page of the script uh, that did give some previews of things, glimpses of it. Oh, wow. And they cut it because it was going to be too expensive. Wow. Uh, it was going to be, and I went, ah, but that's the whole point. It's the whole point is to be able to see these things. You got to have it in there. Well, let me ask you this. Was one of those things Adam receiving the sword for the first time? Like, did you think yes. that part? Wow. And also uh, King Miro and going back and, and the predecessor of the sorceress and going back to the first ones. I was, I was, I was going to do as much as I could. I, had, I was even trying to pitch Arthur. Look, Arthur, if we do this, this could be a spinoff for a pre-Eternia, pre-history. Yeah, Powers of Grayskull. Wow. Yeah, that was what I was was shooting for. I didn't... 
I got shot down. <laughs> wow. Was, but we were trying. And yeah, that, was, you know, if you ever wanted to write a book, I mean, please include that. Yeah. So we had, we, we did try and, um, we tried to do as much as we could. Um, got to do a, a little bit in, in Chira. Um, Larry Dutilio wrote more backstory. In fact, in that uh, Secret of the Sword, Secret um, of the Sword movie, which was the first five episodes of Shira season one, there is some backstory because where this, what do you mean? I've got a twin sister, and here's some backstory. So we did try to do that where we could, and uh, even um, uh, Joe Szynski did write an origin of the story, uh, sorcerer's story. So we were constantly trying to bring those elements in and we got to do some. Well, yeah, I remember, yeah. Kodak on Un- go and you know, how, yeah, I couldn't uh, pronounce Tila, it. yeah how uh, Tila uh, takes over and becomes a new sorceress. Mm-hmm. So things like that. Now this question is from Joe Amato from the fans of power podcast. And he asks, was there ever talk or consideration of changing He-Man's cross? from the actual cross to his battle armor symbol. That probably would, that would have been done at a different level of the company than I was a privy to. Okay. Um, I know there was some uh, issues. I remember there were some issues in Germany about He-Man. Wow. Because the term masters of the universe, a blonde Superman with a German iron cross on his chest was just a little bit too close to the Aryan Nazi mythos. And it was, it was, there was a lot of, I guess, uh, discussion back and forth. I, I, I was only hearing bits of it, but it was some concern. Maybe I'm thinking it might've happened in the early days when they were pitching the ideas to the different countries, you know, okay. uh, setting up distribution. And that might've been an initial comment to the German uh, broadcaster saying, I don't know about this. Um, I don't think anything was changed uh, for them, but I think they were uh, concerned that that might be uh, a, a sensitive subject. But as far as changing, you know, the, the um, uh, Lou was all about keeping the production affordable that we could continue to, to produce them. And so some decisions were made uh, to not make custom things to match the toys, because that was just another toy feature right, right. Um, that that would just add more cost to production. I mean, we couldn't use the stock. We couldn't use the same as we had to do all new stuff for mm-hmm. this one thing. And then why isn't he wearing it all the time after that? And those are the kinds of thing, considerations. Like Faker only having bright eyes instead of his blue skin. Yeah, well, see, we back in the beginning of production, uh, a lot of us had a, an issue with Adam being basically He-Man with pink uh, clothes and and not a tan, you know, okay. and fairer skin. So this is ridiculous. Okay, print. There should be a transmission from uh, a boy to this muscle man, you know, kind of like Shazam from uh, Billy Batson to to uh, Captain Marvel. There right. was a huge transformation. All he does is change his clothes and, and, and get a man tan. So, uh, but again, that was, that was an, uh, an economic consideration. 
Right. Uh, I think Mattel uh, balked at that a little bit too, but you know what? Mattel was using the same mold for exactly. Prince Adam as they were for He-Man, so they couldn't argue too much. Yeah, I guess it, it made sense for them back then. Yeah. So yeah. what are you doing nowadays? Now, uh, I know you mentioned you also do some uh, commissions. I do. Well, I have done a lot of things. When I uh, left Los Angeles, I uh, continued to do some storyboarding at a distance. I, I did uh, in the early 90s. I worked for uh, on a show called Widget the World Watcher, which was a um, environmental cartoon in the early 90s. And then uh, for ABC, it was um, the Wild West Cowboys of Blue Mesa. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. for that. Then uh, I did one storyboard for uh, Darkwing Duck for Disney. And that allowed me to, okay, long story short, I moved to Los Angeles to work for Disney. I was there 13 years, never broke in. And I even, Glenn Keane, the top animator, went to my church and he got me interviewed, wow. but I didn't make the grade. Okay. Uh, so, I moved to I moved to Nashville, and a couple years later, I get I get a call saying we need some help. Can you do a storyboard for us? I go well, sure. What? And it's well, one of our guys is on vacation, another guy is sick, another guy's on his honeymoon, and we've got a deadline. So I ended up getting uh, Darkwing Duck, just one one half of one episode, <laughs> and I was able to put Disney on my resume. And that, awesome. that was good for a lot of things. From there, I went into gra graphic design and illustration and worked for a record company uh, for about four years. When they're making the transition from traditional media to this newfangled desktop publishing, Quark Express, Photoshop, and so on. And I got to learn on the job this new digital, these new digital tools. And from there on, I, um, I was doing graphic design and I've done instructional design where I take my uh, storytelling uh, chops and animation chops and used it to help to teach both. Uh, we start out with um, elementary school reading programs with the company I was working with and then later on to uh, corporate training. Okay. But one of the best jobs I ever got was doing some NASA training. And it wasn't wow. animation. Uh, they were having a changing of the guard. The old uh, administration was retiring, and they needed to teach the ones coming up how to make difficult decisions. And so we had a, a photographer go down and shoot pictures down there. And then they gave me access to the entire NASA library of photography. Wow. And I, uh, and, and, and I was part of a team. Uh, script was written, the uh, narration was recorded, and then I assembled it into a um, an animatic slideshow kind of thing. But basically, told the story of what happens if you're you've got a shuttle launch coming up, and a hurricane is heading towards the Cape, and here's a, here's an issue. It takes 48 hours to move the shuttle from the hangar to the launch pad. Well, what happens if you're 24 hours out and you're looking at the path of the hurricane? Is it going to strike or is it going to veer off? How do you make your decision? Because it's going to take 24 hours to get it back into the hangar. 
So that was the scenario, which was based on a real life incident. And I just had a ball building it because I had all their photography and we shot pictures of the actual people who made those decisions. And so we had, you know, had that going. It, it was, it was a thrill. So my video ended up being shown to people at NASA, but then it was also shown to, to people at Congress, which that was just amazing. Yeah. So I've gotten to do a lot of very interesting things in my career. Um, Fair enough. I've, um, worked for, as an instructional designer. I've worked uh, with a um, slot machine company doing <laughs> uh, stuff for their games. And now I'm back doing instructional design for um, uh, a senior living company to teach them how to deal with things like this COVID stuff. And I'm this close to retirement to where I can just draw and paint all the time. Very but in the meantime, I've been going to conventions and uh, doing some art. I'll show you, you know, these uh, these pops. The Funko Pops, yep. The oversized. Yep, the pops. What I've been doing is I've been illustrating on the packaging. Wow. And it's almost like painting cells. Very nice. That's a T-Man, and I've got one for uh, Oh, Cyclone. Cyclone. Very nice. These are all I have left. That, uh, they sell really quickly. And um, oh, sure. I'll, I'll sometimes uh, be asked to do a signing at uh, local comic book stores and and so on. And that's that that keeps uh, keeps me busy. And I need to get some more pops and paint them. <laughs> Definitely. And like I said, I, I, I do also uh, do commissions. I'm on hiatus right now because I'm in the process of moving, okay. and so. All my art supplies are packed, but in about another month, I'll be able to unpack and I'll be ready to do more commissions then. Very nice. Are you on social media? Where where can people find you? You can find me on Facebook. I am uh, Generally, if, if you send me a friend request, I'll accept it unless I find something really horrible on your page. Okay. I won't. But uh, generally, if you're if you're fairly decent, I'll, I'll let you in and as long as you behave yourself. Um, I have a website, which is long overdue for an update, but it's still functional. Uh, RobertArtWriter.com. And um, that's well, where you awesome. find me. Awesome. Well, thank you for so much for your time and for all of your hard work on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. You mentioned about how people have said to you, you made my childhood. Well, I happen to be one of those children. So thank you, sir, for all your hard work. Thank you for contributing a huge part to Masters of the Universe. Thank you for being on People of Eternia. Mr. Well, Robert Lamb, everyone. And that does it for another exciting episode of People of Eternia. I'm Tom Romero. Take care, guys. People of Eternia podcast is a Toylines podcast production. Intro and outro music is by Brian Salvatore. Cover art is by Tom Derenick and Andrew Kramer. Special thanks to Scott Knightlick and Spectre Creative. Email us at peopleofeternia.com. Follow us on social media at People of Eternia. Voiceover outro is provided by me, Amani. Come back next time for another powerful episode of People of Eternia.